Well, um, but I, I think I probably won't read the full passage, and I'll briefly explain why. I think it, there's magnificent truth in here. It's like a, a mine where we can sort of dig out gold nuggets, and I hope we'll get a few this morning by God's help. But like many of our passages in Romans that we take sort of in isolation when you come to a one morning, to read it once, or maybe for some of you to read it for the first time, which is wonderfully true for some of you who've recently become Christians, might just seem like a little uh, odd or a little complicated. It's not really in context and explained. I hope I'm going to help you with that a bit this morning. But I think really this magnificent passage, we just need to get into it. And as, you say, as I said, if you have it open, there'll be a few verses that will come up at times and you can look at it and, and sort of dig into it as, as I speak. Now, when we also, another thing to say is when we preach through Romans, which we're doing, we will often repeat the same truths over and over again. And that actually is okay, because that is exactly what the book does. Paul comes at the massive truths of the gospel from different angles. That's what God wants us to get. There are different ways of explaining the same thing. And it, it comes at it first one way and then another, in, certainly in these opening chapters. And you could say, well, why does the Bible do that? Why, why repeat itself? Why doesn't it just do it in a, one little simple statement? Well, actually, it's the genius of the Bible. And it's how it works that God knows you need to know this truth. And when I say know it, I mean know it. I mean the knowing of faith. You need to know it in your knower, not just in your head. Oh, yeah, I know that. Well, I know that, thanks. The sort of thing you hear from kids quite often. Uh, teenagers, anyway, he says from bitter experience. But no, no, actually, actually, that's not the sort of knowing we want. No, I know that. Do you know it? And actually, you need to keep knowing it. That's what faith's about. And so it's no problem to repeat the truth because faith comes by hearing the word. And as you hear the word of God, faith will come afresh. That is my prayer this morning for every one of you. That as you hear God's word, faith will come afresh, maybe for the first time to some of you, afresh to many of you, stirred again. I pray God will impart faith from his word in the next half an hour. Amen. I mean it. Amen. And that's my prayer. So this morning, we're going to look at some magnificent good news. Now, we need good news. This is a time of utter chaos and confusion. I've never known. I've seen some pretty grim times in my fairly lengthy life. But talk about confusion. I'm not sure it's as there have been worse in some aspects, economically, for example. But at the moment, you think, what is going on? There's fear, there's anger, there's contention, there's millions of people screaming one way, millions of people screaming the other way. In our country, and you know what I'm talking about, I won't almost mention the word, but, but there's absolute confusion. And it's mostly when you watch the news, and sadly, certainly if you go, not only our own country, but you go and think of Syria, whatever, there's not much good news. This is good news this morning, seriously good news. There is a clear, universal message of good news for all men and women, and it's this, and I'll explain it as we go through. You can be saved. You can be saved. What do you mean you say? Well, that means 
You can come to know God as your heavenly Father. You can come to know peace with God. The gulf between you and the creator of everything and of you can be and has been, that gulf has been crossed, it can be removed for you and you can be reconciled to God and know him as your loving heavenly father. You can be saved from the consequences of your own and others' sins. Their sins to you which disturbed you and distorted your life, your own misbehaviours, your own sins, your own failures, they can all be removed and you can be reconciled to God and made like Jesus. It's a wonderful message. And, And this is very important. You can know this in one way only. You can come into the good of this in one way only, by faith in Jesus Christ. So you can be saved by faith in what God has promised through Jesus Christ. Now that is available for everyone, man, woman and child, Whatever your race, whatever your age, whatever your intellectual ability, whatever your status class, whatever you like to list it, there is nothing that need exclude you from receiving that good news. Indeed, as an element of level ground about it, of egalitarianism about it, it's the same for all of you. It doesn't matter how high and mighty or low, you need to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you are saved. And it is a magnificent salvation. And we're going to look at it quickly under three, briefly, three very obvious headings. So first of all, I want to talk about what I'm beginning to say. We are saved by faith in God's promises. But this needs explaining. Paul's been saying it in different ways in these chapters already. And last week I listened to Jonathan. I thought he did a great job talking about that Apollo 13 mission. And he mentioned some of the words that I will mention now for a few minutes. That's fine. You need to keep getting them. Because we start off really where that was sort of finishing as we come into chapter 4 to remind you, you, are, you can be justified by faith. Now, these are words that don't immediately make sense to many of us just from the ordinary run of life. What does that mean, justified by faith? So I'm going to take two or three minutes to remind you and explain it in case you haven't heard it before because they're very important. You can be justified before God. Now, the word justified means this. Listen carefully. It's absolutely true, and you need to hear the truth. The word justified means to be declared innocent. Now, that is a legal term. Hear it. To be declared innocent. It is an official legal term. It is used even in our own legal system. There is a book written by a man called Noel Fellows. It's called Killing Time, and it's about how he was falsely accused and convicted of a crime and later proved to be innocent. It helps you to understand it. I can't tell you the story. I haven't time. If you want to read it, I suppose you can still get it somewhere on Amazon. Right, it's a good book, good story, Christian story. In the end, he became a Christian. He didn't start off as one. Right, let's just hear the word justified. In Noel's case, and if it happens legally, it is pretty precise. It's a rare thing in our country. It means that you were convicted of a crime and thought to be guilty, in his case went to prison, and it usually does mean you've already been punished for it, 
but it is later, hear the words, proved that you didn't do it. Proved. It's not one of these ones where there's just not enough evidence and blah, 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 and the miscarriage of justice, all the funny terms they use. This time, it's you could not have done it because we can prove this other person did it. So you are justified. That means you are declared innocent. You did not do it. Now, that's great, and that's true, and that's legal. But the startling thing is that God justifies people who did do it. You and me. Because we're told here, God justifies the ungodly. What? How outrageous. How can God declare Phil innocent when Phil isn't innocent? He's a rotten sinner, which he is. How can God say, you're innocent? It's not, how does it work? It does work before the court of heaven because someone else pays for your sin. Jesus bears your sin in his body on the cross and the holy wrath of God is satisfied. God's justice is satisfied. The penalty is paid and you are declared innocent in Christ. Innocent through Christ. It's outrageous, but it's wonderful. It's the grace of God. But it is a legal reality before the throne of God. He declares you innocent. Now, the other key word is faith. What's faith mean? We say, I think I know. Well, you're going to find out by the end of the morning because I keep saying it. Faith is trusting God and believing that he will do what he said he'll do. So it's believing his promises. And if God says he will justify me and declare me innocent on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, I'm going to believe him. Are you? Faith is you say, God, I accept what you do. I believe you, Lord. I assume you're telling the truth. I assume the truth of what you say. And I will live in the light of it. And you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, to really help you to get this, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses two examples in the verses that I'm looking at in top first half of Romans 4. He uses Abraham and David. And he uses these two examples because he's drawing a lot on Jewish history. They're huge heroes. They are the heroes of the Jews, Abraham and David, magnificent men, but very flawed, actually. But the Jews sort of ignored the flaws, really. They are absolute heroes. And Paul is showing that they are only saved by faith themselves. They're only credited righteous by faith themselves. So I haven't time to go deeply into this, but you, I'm sure, will be able to trust me on it and you can read it for yourself. But Abraham, let's start with Abraham. And it's a really, I love this stuff. This is really important. I think it's magnificent because he's showing you some really thorough stuff about how you're saved and what you are when you're saved. And if you don't get blessed by this morning, well, you're probably not saved, I would say, basically. So, right. You might, um, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. Right, so Abraham. Abraham, he was considered an utter hero by the Jews. He was considered, and he was called, the friend of God. He was the receiver of all the covenant blessings. And Jewish rabbis, I could have given you quotes, spoke of him as being, Abraham, the epitome of righteousness. They taught that he received the promises 
because, hear this, he was such a righteous man. They got so locked on that Abraham was such a righteous man, while that's why he was blessed. Well, Paul gets to this chunky middle bit. Let's put it up, thank you. Romans 4, verses 3 to 5. Let's read what he says. Because they're saying Abraham was declared righteous because he was such a good guy. And Paul says, what does Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteous, as righteousness. I don't want to miss a thing here. Look at the phrase, what does Scripture say? Christians, we need to discover that again. We've gone bonkers today. We need to trust our Bibles. Stop trusting every Tom, Dick, and Harry. The Bible. The Bible. What does Scripture say? That's how we resolve things. That's how God speaks to us. Look at the terminology. Scripture says, what do you mean says? It's a book, isn't it? A funny old book. No, it's the Word of God. It speaks to you. It speaks. And as you hear it, faith comes. Because God speaks through his word. So the question you should always ask, brothers and sisters, is what does Scripture say? Hang on, I want to know what Scripture, I want to know what God says. That's not only God's authority, that brings faith. So he starts like that. What does Scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15, 6, and then he sort of unpacks it. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, he uses the word credited. He says, Abraham was credited righteous. Now let's dig it. It's a deliberate choice of a financial term. It's an accounting term. I think most of us know it. What credited means. Credited means that something is put in your account. Now you can have, you could have say, £2,000 credited to your account two ways. Well, probably many ways, but too broadly. Many of us are like this. We work hard for a month or two, depending on your wages, and at the end, we, our employer, credits our account with a couple of thousand pounds. That is, in a sense, a debt the employer owes you because you've worked hard for a month or two. That is totally straightforward. You've worked, you've got it credited to your account. In fact, you'd be indignant if you hadn't. But another thing could happen is that someone totally spontaneously credits you with a gift to your account. You don't earn it, you didn't deserve it, you may be not even expecting it. And it's a totally different dynamic, isn't it? One is, not, you're not that excited, in fact, you wish you got more, and you owed it anyway. Fine, yeah, about time. As long as it's there by the end of the month, it's okay. And the other one is like, wow, thank you. I did, I did nothing for that. I didn't deserve it. Well, Paul is very clear that our righteousness, our salvation, is obviously the second one. It's credited as a gift, not as an obligation. God does not owe you a jolly thing. God doesn't owe you anything. You say, oh, yes, he does. I've had a rotten life. Listen, if you get what you deserve, you'll be judged. We're all sinners. We're all alienated from God, at enmity with God. We don't like him. We shake our fists at him. We hate him in the underneath. And we're full of all sorts of 
mistakes and errors and failures that are offensive to God, the way we lust and envy and hatred and lying and, and uh, selfishness and pride, the list goes on and on, apart from the outworking of those things, we don't deserve anything from a holy, just creator. There's no obligation here. This is a gift. You need to see your salvation as a gift. You don't deserve any of it. You need the gift response. Wow, thank you. Not the, well, yeah, I could have done with a bit more. No. You didn't get it as an obligation. It's a gift. But look at the wonderful phrasing. I love this. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. Oh, are you one of those? I am. I'm one who has not worked, but trusts that God justifies the ungodly. Are you one of those ones? I hope you are. You can be this morning. I'm one, and I love the term. I'm one that's saved. One who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. I was ungodly. I'm a sinner. I'm, I trust that God has justified me. Come and be one of those if you're not already. That's what faith really is. We get impute, incredited to our account the righteousness of God. I mean, I could spend honestly hours on it. We get credited to our account. You, stupid John Groves, failing, feeble John Groves, God says, you've got nothing in your account, but I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to put in your account everything that Jesus has got. Oh, my word. Credited on what basis? It's a gift. No obligation. Hallelujah. You're still alive. It's wonderful. I want to see some smiles. Perhaps you don't believe it. I believe it. It's the gospel. And if you get it, you will live differently. You get it, you live differently. Now he moves to David, and it's just as good, but it's a different angle on the same truth. And when he goes to David, he uses... Now, David was another hero, and they thought he was wonderful. But actually, he was a great king, but actually he was full of sin. I mean, he's an adulterer, he's a liar, he's a murderer, he's a very poor parent. You can find all sorts of failures in David's life. You don't have to look very far. But David also understood this and received God's grace and mercy. And here's a takeaway verse for that. Romans 4 verse 8. Look at this one. This is something David wrote. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. It's, a, it's an accounting picture again. A, whose sin the Lord will never count against them. I'm one like that as well. Are you another one? I am one whose sin the Lord will never count against me. I, John Groves, will never, ever have my sin counted against me. Ever. Because it's gone. Because Jesus took it away. Can you say that? It could be true for this one, anyone. Blessed. I'm blessed. This is gift again. What a blessing. That my sin is not counted against me. So he's using a double accounting. I hope you're spotting it. There are two things that God does for you. Think of the accounting thing. One is, you've got like a huge debt, 
and he wipes the debt out. And the other is he puts a whole bunch of money in. Imagine you had nothing in your account but a £100,000 debt. That's all you've got. You're in the red for a hundred grand. And someone pays the hundred grand and puts a hundred grand in. That is not, and more, yeah, look, we'll call it millions. You can't stop. I mean, instead of a hundred in the red, you're a hundred in the black. That is salvation. Your sins are removed and you are given, credited, the righteousness of Christ. Do you get that? You need to live with it. You have the sin is not counted against you. It's wiped out, blotted out. The Bible calls that. Blotted. So like a accounting. It's blotted out of the account book. And you have credited into it the righteousness of Christ. It's absolutely incredible. And it's a free gift. Let's move very quickly on. We are not saved by good deeds, law-keeping, and religious rituals. We've got no time to linger on this. But these are the normal assumptions about how you get right with God, and they're all completely wrong. They're all rubbish. And they're all wrong because they rely on a certain arrogance and pride which thinks that somehow you deserve to be right with God. And you've got something to boast about. And that's a reference Paul makes in verse 2 of chapter 4. He said, look, if, the, if, he, if Abraham got this by work, he'd be boasting before God. I'm, I'm just a bit better than other people. I work a bit harder. I'm a bit more religious. I keep the law better. I... Look, any effort you make to put you, yourself right with God is paltry. It's like you have a £10 million debt. You scrape together 300 quid and think that solves the problem. You work hard, and you worked hard too. You've really scraped together, you've saved, you scrimped, and you've got 300 pounds. <laughs> Will you forget my 10 million pound debt, please? But, he's, but it's not like God, oh, God's nice. Oh, right, then you made an effort. It doesn't work like that. We're talking about legalities. We're talking about real, it's like court. So you owe the bank 10 million pounds, and the law courts will back the bank. You cannot go to the bank and say, here's 300. Will you forget it? Banks don't behave like that. Law courts don't behave like that. The holy, just God does not behave like that. The debt has to be paid, and it was paid in Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't pay it for you, you'll pay it. So I want him to pay it. Amen? Amen. And he does. So my efforts can't do it. My good deeds, my law-keeping. In fact, law-keeping, which is more of a religious issue, many religious groups, Christians as well, are prone to this. Jews, uh, uh, Muslims, we could particularly obviously, think that if they keep the law, somehow that's okay. But actually, Paul here unpacks that a bit, and he says law-keeping can make it worse, actually, because he's saying, really... It adds a hypocrisy element because you often behave well on the outside but are just as bad inside. But it also has this element which is quite clearly unpacked in, in, in the word transgression in verse 15. I haven't got time to over explain it, but you just get it this bit. If you know the right thing to do and don't do it, that's almost worse. Well, it is worse. So the law actually more condemns you. You are condemned as a sinner anyway. 
So it's not like if, there isn't a, if you don't know the law, you're okay. It's not like that. But the law adds another dimension of condemnation because you knew the right thing to do and you didn't do it. And that creates transgression, which is an official term for breaking a law. So, you, you know, the law doesn't save you. If anything, it makes the whole thing worse. And then religious ritual, reference here to circumcision, that the Jews thought because they were circumcised, they were fine. Paul points out the fact that Abraham was credited righteous by faith and only circumcised years later, maybe 14 years later, as best you can work it out. The circumcision, the religious act, was a demonstration of who he already was in God, which I think is a very strong parallel with baptism, by the way. That God says these things demonstrate what's already true in your life. They are a sign or a seal of it. They're not a way of earning it. You don't earn God's favour by going through a religious ritual or a law or good deeds. None of those things will ever do enough to save you. So you've got to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And he uses the parallel of Abraham. And he says, Abraham had kept no law rendered no service, these are my words of course, performed no ritual that earned him credit before God. Abraham stood in the right before God by believing, not by doing. Now this is so important. If I go over two or three minutes, which I think I might, I cannot avoid it. You must hear it. It's so important that you understand, we need to understand how promise language works and not live in law language which is so easy to do, that God says, God's told me, obey this, and if I obey that, he has to save me, bless me. That is not the language of the gospel. It's promise language. Promise language is this. God says, I will do this, and you believe him and respond in faith. And that is a very different way of operating. And Abraham believed God, and that's what we need to do. That is the final point. Abraham, so God says to Abraham and to us, I will do this. In our case, what we've been talking about, salvation through Jesus. I will do it. He doesn't say, obey this law and I will bless you. He says, I will bless you. Believe my word. Believe my promise. And that's what Abraham did. And hear this, his whole subsequent life was an outworking of that faith in God's promise. You see, this is not easy believism. This is not like, I've got a ticket to heaven, forget it. It's nothing like that. This is a life-changing act of faith. God has promised these magnificent things we've been talking about for 20, 25 minutes, and we believe them and live by them. We continually live by them, which is where I want to finish quickly with living by faith, or what is faith? And it will have to be quicker than I would have liked. It won't be the time allowed for, the, uh, for things here. But we do need to just get some headlines. Faith, very quick indeed, is the basis of our relationship with God from the start. You can't come and have dealings with God without faith. We haven't time to look at it. Hebrews 11 verse 6, look at it for yourself. It's non-negotiable. You cannot say, I want to be a Christian, but I want to see everything and understand it all first. You have to get what you get, get what I'm giving you this morning, and then step out in faith. You've got to start with faith. And faith is not based, second thing, on physical proof. This is a mistake people make. Look, faith 
is not based on physical proof, and it doesn't work. Jesus gave the Pharisees a lot of proof, and they thought he was a devil. Jesus healed people in front of their eyes, and they said, he's the king of devils. If you've got an unbelieving heart, no amount of proof, you could say, I'd like God to turn up. Well, if you've got that attitude, God will turn up and you'll say it's an extraterrestrial or I had something put in my coffee or I ate too much cheese last night. You, that Faith doesn't work like that. Faith works by hearing God's word and believing it. Faith is settling to believe what God says. You do not move in the realm of seeing and feeling and emotion when you start off in faith. Faith, this is so important today. We've got to hear it. Faith is not your feelings. It's not the same thing. I'm going to give you an illustration. Maybe I'll have to settle on this illustration, but it might help. Let me imagine, you imagine, and we imagine, you have got a train to catch. You want to get a train to Southampton. You're at Waterloo. You have bought your ticket to Southampton. It says Southampton. It's got the date. You are going on this train. You're in Waterloo. You've got loads of time, actually. So you've been able to relax a bit. And then you go onto the platform, get onto the train. It's five, ten minutes before it's due to pull out. You sit there very relaxed. You've got a seat. It's not crowded. You sit facing the engine or whatever you like to do. Do they have engines? And then you sit there and you get your coffee on there and everything's relaxed. You, in fact, feel really good, feel really chilled, feel really pleased with yourself. You do notice that other people are rushing to get on at the last minute. You give a little knowing smile. Someone almost misses the train. It's much fuller now. Train pulls out. You feel really great. A train pulls out. About five, ten minutes down the line, the guard comes through. He looks, asks your ticket. You, you hand him his ticket with a uh, sort of smile. Hey, good morning. And he says, look, he says, this is a ticket to Southampton. I said, yes. Yeah, paid for it yesterday. He said, well, this train goes to Birmingham. <laughs> what? So imagine how your feelings change instantly. When you hear the word and the truth, oh dear, that's a very different thing. Did your feelings of feeling great and chilled make you on the right train? Of course they didn't. You felt great about everything. But you looked at the board, like, oh, I don't know how, but you looked at the board and thought it was platform 12 and they changed it in the last five minutes. You never bothered to look again because you were co confident you got it right. And you went on the trip platform 12 and the Southampton train was changed to 11. But you, you, you just, your feelings were fine. But that didn't make you go to Southampton, did it? Now listen, you need to know the truth. People say, oh, I don't feel God's like that. I don't think we're sinners. I don't. You can think, well, yeah, if you, you're not going to Southampton, you're going to Birmingham. You need to know the truth and believe it. This is the truth. There is hope only, but there is hope through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And you all can know it. You can know him for yourself. Put faith in the word, in God's truth. Your feelings follow your faith. Your feelings are not your faith. They follow your faith. Not always, actually, but usually. You get faith the right thing, get on the right train, and you can feel. But, but that's a sort of trivial example. We're talking about destiny. We're talking about life. You need to live your life, sure, in the word of God. So faith comes from hearing the word of God. This is rattled up, breakneck speed. There is a real joy in faith. If you get this, you will be joyful. People think, oh, Christians are all miserable. Well, that's because they don't understand the gospel. They might believe it, but they only half understand it. If you understand it, you're not miserable. Honestly, I mean, I have bad days, but if you understand it, you're not sour, old sourpuss all the time, because you've got it. 
And it says in, in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. When you believe the truth, you are filled with joy and peace. You're in a legalistic twist if you're not happy. Sort yourself out. Believe the truth. Read the word of God. Understand what Romans teaches and enjoy it. And be in joy and peace. Salvation is a step of faith, which I've already said, so I won't spend any more time on that. But I will end on the last one. We all live by faith. So you get saved by faith, but you live by faith. It's a constant way in which we live. Now hear me just say this as clearly as I can. The Christian life of faith is a life in which who God is and what God says is always the determining factor in your life and the thing that you act on. I wish I'd written that on the screen. I haven't, so I'm going to repeat it. The, the Christian life of faith is a life in which who God is and what God says is always the determining factor and the thing that you will act on. And actually, and this we will put up the last slide, this simple little principle is how you get saved the last side, thanks. And also how you live as a Christian. This is real faith. You hear and believe God's word. You trust God to do it. You confess the truth. In other words, it is part of your life. You build it into your thinking. You build it into your speaking. I speak from what I believe. Abraham lived out of what he believed God had given him. He changed his name on the basis of it. He lived out of it. And then you will receive the promise. That is how real faith...